0: Good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you today. My name is Dan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. It's great to be with you this morning. we had a great crowd the first service. Good to see all of you who are here in this service as well. It's a beautiful time of the year, isn't it? I just love when the leaves are changing. I lived in Palm Beach, Florida for 20 years, and uh, we didn't have seasons. It was was hot or hot or more hot and then sort of hot. But uh, other than that, uh, you know, we didn't have any seasons. So I, I love living up here and I hadn't had a day off in about a month, so I decided to take my wife for a little drive up in the Blue Ridge parkway yesterday, and the leaves were all beautiful and everything, so it's good to see you here today, and uh, and for those of you who are visiting, thank you so much for being here. We're always honored to have guests visiting, whether this is your first time, first time in a while, or you're just passing through, thank you so much for being here. Every once in a while, somebody pops in, I always, I, I want to recognize, because I think you might be interested, and we have such a person this morning, Tyler Lee is here. Tyler, there you are, right over here, and uh, Tyler is uh, somebody I've just become acquainted with, because he's a, a fellow Liberty well, I'm not a Liberty grad, but uh, he's a graduate of Liberty University where I've, I've taught for 16 years, uh, but he's also a candidate for District 12, uh, U.S. Congress, and uh, many of us live in, in this area. Uh, I'm not endorsing because I'm not allowed to do that in, in this role, so please don't mistake that, but I do believe every one of us has, a, has the privilege and opportunity and the responsibility to just find out what's going on politically as well as any other area in our life. And uh, and so uh, I'm just always honored to have guests with us that are running for office and I'm thankful for, for those who stand up for biblical values and the things that are important to Uh, based on an internal perspective, and Mr. Lee's that kind of guy, and I appreciate that. So anytime we have candidates in, though, I'll always just acknowledge them, express appreciation for them. And I want you to consider coming back tonight at uh, 6 o'clock. You know what? Churches don't do some things frequently. You know, we do baptism, we do communion, but one of the other things that we see in Scripture is the ordination of people into ministry. And so uh, they may have mentioned it earlier in the service, but I just want to kind of circle back around um, uh, Pastor Brad, who has been on our staff for a while, is at that final step uh, in in ministry. Uh, certification, so to speak. Uh, you can be licensed, and that lets you do marriages and so forth, and you're commissioned by a church that's basically saying he's a pastor. Uh, but ordination's a really, really big step. It's a final step, and it's a serious step. And about a month ago, uh, we took a Saturday and had an ordination council of other ordained pastors from around the country who, who came in and subjected him to about three hours of an inquisition, making sure that he believed uh, what, he, what he says he believes and can back it up. And, uh, and afterwards, uh, we made the uh, recommendation to our elders to ordain him into the ministry. So we'll be doing that tonight. It's an informal thing. Uh, we'll do it actually from the floor here. And uh, afterwards, we'll have some cake and just say congratulations to him. But if you would like to be with us for that tonight at 6 o'clock, I know he'd be honored if he'd come. So that'll, that'll be an opportunity for you. And uh, several people have asked, by the way, uh, what are we going to do about hurricane victims and so forth uh, in, in Florida? Because we usually try to, to rally around that. Uh, I want to say, because you know 20 years in Florida, my wife is a native of Florida, um, there's always that initial right after a hurricane hits, a lot of people give money, a lot of resources flood in, uh, and that's been the case in this. Uh, but recovery from a hurricane of this level is a year's process. It's not a day's process. Um, so I don't feel like this huge sense of urgency. We've got to get money down there, though. We have sent some money already that we had in reserve for these kinds of things because, you know, we give above and beyond. We give through our budget in addition to our monthly emphasis. So I I made the decision not to shift our monthly emphasis, which is refugee work this month, And I would urge you to continue to give that because particularly what's going on in Ukraine right now in Myanmar, the needs are really great. We've made some commitments to some folks that are really dependent upon those for the end of the month of October. So uh, we'll do something. We've already done some things. Uh, we will do some things more for Florida. If you say, oh, "Look, I've got you know money burning a hole in my pocket. And I really want to give it through the church. Go ahead and give that. Just mark it that that it's for hurricane relief, and I'll make sure it gets there. So uh, you don't you don't have to wait uh, if you if you really feel burdened of the Lord to, to give toward that. And then there's other good organizations like Samaritan's Purse that that we recommend. So you can you can always give through them as well. All right, enough of that. We are in uh, Daniel chapter five, and. Um, I'm so excited about this passage. I say that every time, right? Because I'm serious. If you can't be excited about the Bible, what can you be excited about? Every once in a while, someone will say to me, well, the Bible's such a boring book. And when they say that to me, I'm like, you're doing it wrong. There's there's something going on because the Bible is anything but boring. And I would say this chapter right here is just further evidence of it. That this is one of the most spectacular stories that has just about everything. It has theology in it. It has history in it. It has prophecy in it. It has all kinds of great stuff in it. And if you think it's boring, then you're just doing it wrong. All right. I used to teach a seminar to Christian school teachers back when I was in education. And I said, there is no greater sin than to bore young people with the word of God. And I'm just telling you, this is good stuff. So I kind of want to go through it. The fact is, it's 31 verses, and they're long verses. And so if I just read it again for you, even if we'd added it to the earlier Scripture reading, it's about an 8 to 10-minute read, depending, well, for me, you know, it's 2 minutes. But, but for normal people, it's a, it's a, it's a longer read. And I, 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 I so I, on social media this week, urged you to go ahead and read chapter 5. I hope you did that. I, I hope you're familiar with this. But what I want to do is I want to retell the story. Add to it some layers of historical and situational context, and then I want us to draw some conclusions from it. So that's going to be kind of our journey this morning uh, as, as we go through it. So we, we won't read all the verses. If you haven't read them, please go through and do this, um, you know, on your own. Uh, again, you don't eat just once a week, right? And so you'd be, be self-feeding, read during the week, and, and, and so i will go ahead and read chapter six because that's where we'll be next week. Uh, but but here's, here's kind of what we've got going on here because it's such a spectacular story. So the scene in chapter five is a celebratory feast. I, I don't know, I like uh, epic historical TV shows and, and movies, you know, where it's kind of like set back in Middle Ages or something like that. And almost always, there's a, if, if it's about a kingdom, there's always this, this scene that you, that you have somewhere in the movie where the, the king has this big banquet hall and everybody comes in, there's always a pig with an apple in his mouth. You ever notice that? Always. Every stinking movie has a pig with his apples in his mouth during this scene. But so anyway, you've got that. You've got beautiful women. You've got got platters of grapes that are perfectly positioned, right? We've all seen the movie. Well, this is exactly what we've got going on here. We've got got a king whose name is Belshazzar, and Belshazzar has decided to throw this huge feast. It's a a veritable orgy of wine, women, food, and foolishness. It's everything you've ever seen depicted and, and going on. Now, let me just stop here and explain to you a little bit about Belshazzar, because this is one of those points that as you're reading this passage, it's easy to misunderstand uh, some things about it. And what happens is if you misunderstand it, it can undermine your confidence in the Word of God. And, and remember this, theology is a science as well. In fact, uh, it's been called the queen of all the sciences. So you have to know what you're doing. There are certain rules of interpretation that you follow. And I'm not going to get deep into that today, other than to say this, you have to study scripture, which in its, in its context and its purpose. The Bible was not given to us to be a history textbook. Uh, it skips, it moves, it moves around. It's not even in chronological order. So it's never intended to be that. But it is historically accurate. And by the way, there are times when it has been accused of being historically inaccurate that later on they would make new discoveries and find out, oops, they were, we were wrong. The Bible was right. It is indeed historically accurate. So don't always assume. Uh, those are called apparent contradictions, Uh, and the reason they're called apparent contradictions is because you don't know everything yet, and eventually the apparent disappears, and so does the contradiction, and you can see it in light of it, and almost every one of those accusations you can pretty well explain it if you study it, but a lot of people are armchair theologians, you know. If you ask me what is nuclear fission or nuclear fusion, I could probably give you a definition for it, but don't ask me how it works because that's not my expertise. Uh, Sometimes we read, you know, 10 verses out of the King James Version and listen to Charles Stanley on TV and all of a sudden we become experts in theology and it doesn't work that way all right I constantly am studying and learning behind and uh, because I know I don't understand it all that's part of why we study the Bible the way we do and I would encourage you to do that as well so who is Belshazzar well, Belshazzar, in the first part of the passage which we read this morning, there's a reference to Nebuchadnezzar, and, and we related to him as his father. You say, well, hang on just a minute, because history doesn't line up with that. And that's true. Belshazzar was not the biological son of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not a contradiction. Instead, it's a colloquial term that they use in as much as some of us use this term even today. For instance, I often say, I have a father in the ministry. He's in heaven today, but his name was Charles Wood. And I would often call, call him up. Sometimes I'd call him Dad Wood. Uh, and, and the reason was because he acted as a spiritual father to me for many years and, 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 and helped me studying and examining scripture and learning how to be a decent pastor and those things. So that's the reference. Um, sometimes, you know, you, you talk about your forefathers, um, you know, even uh, politically and, and historically in our nation. Well, they're not, you know, I'm not a descendant of, of Madison or, or, or Franklin or or uh, Washington or any of those, but they are our fathers in this sense. And that's, that's what it's referring to. Although, although there is, if you'll study the lineage uh, through his mother, Belshazzar is related to some extent to Nebuchadnezzar because there often was a royal line. But here's another thing you need to understand because it can be confusing. Said, well, history says this person was the king and then this person was the king, but you have all these other kings listed. Well, understand that the, the Persian Empire, the Media persian Empire, the Chaldean Media persian Empire, okay, you see how I keep adding words? Because it's all part of it. It was a kingdom of kingdoms. And that happened, by the way, that, that happened, why they call the Great Britain the United Kingdom. Because there was Wales and Scotland and, and, and England and, and, and so forth, and they united them together. And so then there was a superior king. Sometimes referred to as the king of kings. Now, spiritually, we often call Jesus the king of kings, right? King of kings and lord of lords. Same kind of concept that there would be other kings, but then there was the king. And that's this kind of situation. So Belshazzar was never the, the, the grand Puba. He was never, never number one. He was number two. Now, this is significant because in a minute when we're going through this story, we're going to talk about number three. You say, well, why, was, why would he say you could be number three, but not number two? Was there a significance? Well, he couldn't because Belshazzar was number two. Number one was this guy's father, his actual father, and his name was Nabonidus. Now, you find Nabonidus in, scripture, or in history, by the way, and he was the ruler. He was the big ruler. He was the ruler of the Babylonian Empire that included the Medes and the Persians and the Chaldeans and, and the city of Babylon. It contained all of these things, but each of those subparts had a king over them. So you could rightfully say Belshazzar was the king of the city of Babylon. That was his area. This was an important responsibility because the city of Babylon had these huge, mighty walls. It was the center of the empire. It's where all the politicians lived. It's all the powerful, the bankers, all the scientists, all the university professors. They had the library there. They had the great gardens. They had all those things, huge walls, and it was nourished by the Euphrates River, which is going to be significant. But the Euphrates River went through it. And they had gates that would keep you from being able to just willy-nilly come in. They could go up and down. But the river was what gave them water, took away the refuse, and allowed commerce to travel through the city. So it was built on both sides, this huge Metropolis, amazing architecturally. This is the heartbeat of science. So much of our math came out of this culture during that time. Many of the theories that we found later to be, you know, the basis for our math came out of this time in history and this empire specifically. So, Dan, why are you spending so much time on this? Because context matters. And for us to get the full weight, And to be able to draw the right comparisons, it's important to understand the significance of what is going on here. So, Nabonidus was number one. Number two was Belshazzar. So, Belshazzar is having this big old feast for his court. Now, his court would be like his cabinet, the chief officials of, of the area, his secretaries, so to speak, of the different thing. Because it was a huge empire, and he couldn't do it all by himself. So the court would be real close in hand. This would be like Washington's elite that was coming into the White House for a big old banquet of just the power brokers of that community. And Belshazzar was really wanting to impress them. And this was a super indulgent feast that had lots of booze, lots of great food. And it's very interesting because ironically, the time when he held it was not a smart time. Because it was a distraction. I mean, everybody's talking about the feast, right? Who's sitting next to whom? You know, to sit at the king's table was a big deal. You would get an invitation that says you were invited to share the king's salt in many kingdoms, and that meant that you were close enough to be able to use the same bowl of salt as the king. That means you were at the head table. You were a big wig, and, and so the, there, was, there was a pecking order. So everybody in culture and society is talking about, did you get an invitation? I got it. Where are you seated? What table are you at? Is it close to the front? You know, oh, it's back in the back in the dark, you know. Is that, so people are talking about this thing. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, as they used to say in the old westerns, meanwhile, you've got an army of Chaldeans and Persians that are outside of the city. And they've been gathering, gathering, gathering. Now, you can't get inside because there's walls and there's a fortress and there's gates and there's all kinds of things going on. But they're just out there just being intimidating. And this is part of the political game that's being played. So they're just out there being, you look out there and see this huge mass of tents, a huge army all put out there. And they're, and, and, and they're kind of stomping their feet and they're making a racket and so forth. What are they up to? What's going on? You know, are they threatening? And, and Belshazzar throws a feast in the middle of this. Now, he should have been nervous. He should have been watching. He should have been preparing. But he's partying instead. So as we look in this party, it's really kind of interesting And Belshazzar is just living out this life of of hubris and and, and arrogance at this moment. And the wine is flowing, the food is being carried in by the cartload, and before long, Belshazzar starts drinking a little too much. Now, this story turns almost a little humorous at this point, but I want to just kind of pause here. Can I make a little editorial insertion here, otherwise known as one of Dan's rants, <laughs> okay? And this really wasn't in my notes, but I think it's really important because sometimes the Lord brings things to my attention and my mind over the course of time. I don't want to ignore, Lord, why are you bringing these things in? And, and I will say this, so Belshazzar gets up there and he gets toasted, all right? Let's just be honest, he gets blitzed. He's drinking too much. And so You know what happens when people drink? They get loud and they get obnoxious, right? not everybody, but a lot of people do. We've all been around somebody at a wedding who makes a fool of themselves because they've been hitting it before they get to the wedding, and they hit it at the wedding, you know, and it just gets worse and worse at the evening. And before long, you know, you're like, when is this plane going to crash? Because we all see it coming, right? And, and often it does. And it's because they've gotten involved in alcohol. Which That's why the Bible warns us, be aware of and careful with your relationship with alcohol. And this is where I just want to pause for just a moment and say this. I really believe that's something that we need to consider in the church today. Now, I grew up, again, you know how I grew up, I'm not going to go into that again, but, um, you know, in our home, drinking alcohol was like drinking poison. You didn't touch the stuff, all right? You just didn't do it, and that was a decision I made early on in my life. So I've got lots of sins, I'll confess them to you if you want to hear them. Alcohol's never been a problem with me because of how I was reared, but I also know that in my rearing, that they almost took an unbiblical extreme in how they taught us about it. Uh, you know, I was basically taught that Jesus turned the water into welches. <laughs> you know, all right? That's basically the way I was taught when that's just demonstrably not true, all right? So, but, but in, in that process of, of it, I, I also think, you know, we fail to understand things that should be warning us. And here's what happened for many of my generation. So we went to that and said, well, that's just not biblical. I can drink as much as I want, And so that pendulum, as pendulums often do, swung to the other direction. But the Bible says a lot to say about your relationship with alcohol. If you're coming under the influence of it, it's a bad thing, not a good thing. All right. If you're losing control of your faculties and your ability to make good decisions, if it's become an addiction, if it's become a little god in your life, if it's become something that causes embarrassment or a lack of clarity in thinking, it's a problem. And so when we drink to that extent, that it's starting to interfere with our life, that was interfering with our cognition and those kind of things, that's when we need to step back and say, I need a different relationship with my, with my drinking. Now, I, I will tell you that in my role as a pastor, the Bible's really, really clear. Drunkenness and being a pastor, not compatible with each other, all right? It's a, it's a career ender for, for a pastor. I get that. But that doesn't mean that everybody else should be able to just to go nuts on it. And, and I, I would just simply say, if you've got an issue, if you've got a problem, if you've got an addiction, and by the way, I'm working with probably 8, 10, maybe 12 people right now who are at some level. Some have been have been absolutely haven't touched it for a year. I've got some who are on you know, like day five or, or whatever. If that's, that's your issue, we've all got our issues. So don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. Be challenged. Be challenged because this is part of our journey of being careful and Christ-like and moderate. This is what Scripture calls us to do. So what we have here is Belshazzar, no moderation going on there. And it gets a little humorous at this point because uh, at at this point, he's he's just like, I got an idea, he said. And then it gets blasphemous. Now, you see here, at one point, the happy drunk becomes stupid drunk. And this is what happened to Belshazzar. He said, I'll tell you what, you know those vessels we got from Jerusalem down at the temple? You know the party ones, the gold ones, and the silver ones, and the ornately inscribed ones, and all those beautiful ones? Bring them on in. We're going to take this party up a notch. And so they went to what was the equivalent of the museum where they had them stored. They gather them all together. They bring them in. He said, pass them out and fill them up. Let's go, boys. We're going to have a good time tonight. And the next thing you know, they've taken these sacred vessels which were formed from the sacrifice of God's people to be used in worship to the God of Israel, to the Hebrew God. The God who, by the way, his father, or father, Nebuchadnezzar, had repented of or, or repented to and repented of his false worship, so that he, and, and it was a testimony. And now, just a couple of kings later, we got Belshazzar saying, hey man, get the vessels, we're gonna be blasphemous and disregard what Nebuchadnezzar said about the Hebrew God, and in fact, we're gonna get even drunker tonight using the holy vessels of the Hebrew conquest, that's what we're gonna do. And so they did, they brought them all in, everybody got a cup, everybody starts drinking, and they're going, they're going just absolutely nuts, and, and, and they're getting drunker and drunker. And then, all of a sudden, boom, the air went out of the room. Have you ever been at an event where that happened? Where something just like, boom, happened, and all of a sudden, like, everybody just goes... You, 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 it sounds like the air getting sucked out of the room. It just goes silent. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's joking. Everybody's... And then, all of a sudden, boom. And the reason is because a hand, again, supernatural, but this is what happened, a hand appears over on the side, or perhaps even behind, we don't know for sure, where a finger is extended and it's writing in the plaster so that the lampstand that is nearby perfectly illuminates it, almost like a spotlight. And you see this hand, and it's scrawling letters, but letters that no one knows what they mean. And the Bible says that all of a sudden, the atmosphere in that room completely changed. And this is where it gets a little funny. Because Belshazzar, who's not feeling a lot of pain at this point, all right, he's about three sheets in the wind. He looks up at it. The Bible says the color drains from his face. The strength leaves his limbs. He collapses back into his regal throne. And his knees smote one against the other. I, I, I love that depiction because he's literally doing this all right you ever seen those cartoons you know and and somebody gets scared and their knees knock and you always say does that really happen well it did this time all right it's probably where they got it but his knees are smiting one i love the king old king james they smoked one against another and so you know they he's just losing it all right he was wearing the pins because i mean that was not a good night for him right so he just absolutely freaks out and as soon as he does he says i gotta solve this problem Because here's what happens in this kind of situation. Never forget this. People always look to the leadership. They always look to leaders. They always look to the people they anticipate having the answers. And so everybody was looking at the hand, and then they're looking at Belshazzar. They're looking at the hand, and then they're looking at Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, he's as white as a ghost, knees smiting against each other. He can't even find the strength to stand up and give reassurance to those in attendance. And he says, What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? He said, Call my experts. This is this again, this is his kingdom. This is he said, I've got people. He said, I want to call the magi, which are the magistrates, which were also scientists and intellectuals. He said, I wanna, I wanna call the sorcerers, people who know religion and pagan I, you, you name it, you bring them here, let's get an answer. And he said, you'll be the third ruler in the kingdom if you can tell me what this means. And you will get a gold chain around your neck and you will get a purple robe to wear which signs, uh, signifies authority, authority and royalty. He said, I'm going to give you a third of the kingdom. I'm going to give you what it takes. And, and this is a big deal, all right? By the way, why did he have say you could get, be number three? Because he was number two. And Nabonidus was number one. So that was the biggest promotion he could give. He couldn't give number two and he wasn't about to or number 1 and he wasn't about to give away number 2 so it was just number 3 He said i'll give you third third position of power in, in the city and the guys came in they said well thanks for the offer but we don't know what's going on here we're clueless because in those days by the way if you led the king astray you got off with your head so they weren't willing to take this gamble this wasn't something they were going they were going to do and so people are confused people are afraid they're looking up there and seeing these letters what does this mean what does this mean And in walks in just this moment, and and it's a real dramatic moment if you like theater, right? In walks with a rustle of her royal robes, the queen mother, right? And it it says the queen, but it's the queen mother. And again, you have to understand English isn't as precise, so you have to study the context, go back to the original Hebrew. So this, this is, could have been Nebuchadnezzar's mother, could have been a previous king's mother, but it is, it is not the queen. The queen was probably sitting by him, but it was rather the queen mother. But she was a woman of great standing and prestige in the community, as was the case in many kingdoms during that time. And she walks in she goes, chill, <laughs> right, be calm. And she's probably whispering to him, act like the king. Quit acting like a, a big coward. Sober up. And listen to me, dude. You got somebody who can give you the answer. He's already been here twice before and interpreted queen, king, I'm sorry, dreams for the king before you, which was Nebuchadnezzar. Call the guy that you know as Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar was Daniel. He said, bring him in. He'll tell you what you need to know. So he said, let it be. They bring in Daniel. Daniel comes in he says, Daniel, if you'll tell me what those words on that wall mean, what that writing means. He said, I'll give you number three spot in the kingdom. I'll give you a gold robe. I'll give you a gold chain, or a a purple robe and a gold chain. And Daniel said, keep your gifts. Keep the chain. Keep the robe. Keep your title. I'm just going to tell you what you need to hear. And so he then, very clearly, after this visceral response, says to him, here's what the words mean. Two, the first two words were the same word, mene, mene. Those words mean you've been numbered or counted. The fact that they're mentioned twice indicates begun and completed, beginning and the end. All right. So in other words, God, by the way, sees the whole of our life. He sees the beginning and the end. He sees beyond our beginning and our end. Remember what I was talking about two weeks ago when I was teaching. Remember, God's perspective is never our perspective. We think it's all about us. But there's a grander narrative that's taking place that glorifies God himself. We're just tiny, 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 tiny little pieces in it. But when the counting comes, God's counting matters because God determines where the starting point is and where the ending point is. And God had said, okay, look, you've been numbered You've been, you've been counted. Then the next word was techo. And this is a similar word because it was a mathematical word, but it means measured as in weighed, but it also has a judgment connotation to it. So in other words, we're taking assessment. We're judging your weight or your substance. right? So in other words, the score is in. We've evaluated the score. And then the last word... And in English, it's translated a couple different ways, peres, or, or, or person, or yufarsen. and But the, the, it's the same word in the Aramaic, which was what was written on the wall. And it has a double meaning to it. And so in one way that it's used, it means divided, all right, Like split apart, this side, that side. Another way it was used colloquially was to describe Persia. Well, that's kind of interesting. Why would it be Persia? We'll come back to that in a moment. So here's the meaning of what he, or here's the interpretation of what he said. He said, I've done some count, or the Lord's done some counting, God's done some counting, and he's done some measuring, and the consequences are you're going to be divided. Now, in the end, what this meant was that God had judged the arrogance, the hubris, the blasphemy of King Belshazzar, and said, I'm done. I'm done. And tonight, you're going to be separated. You've been counted, measured, all this, judged, and here's your verdict. You're not going to survive this. Now, it's really interesting. Let's stick history back in here. It's really interesting because this took place a little over 2,500 years ago this week if you'll study history, because it happened on October 12, 539 B.C. That's the exact date the historians tell us this. Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, had sent these armies that were outside of the city of Babylon at this time. So you can study history. They'd been there. And one of the leaders of there was a guy by the name of Darius, or Darius, depending on how you want to pronounce it, And that night, what they did was they diverted or they dammed the Euphrates River, perhaps with some help from people inside, we don't know. But they were able to bring the army underneath the gate that had blocked people from just coming willy-nilly in through the Euphrates into the city. And they took the city. And they found Belshazzar. And they executed him. He didn't even get to see the sunrise. It was over for him he lost his kingdom. The writing on the wall was personal, and it was directed toward Belshazzar, and it meant the end of his kingdom, and it would be divided. Darius would come in, he'd be the new king, and and, and now you had the Persians, and you had the Medes, and you had the Chaldeans, they're always fighting, fighting and fussing, but it was a big reconfiguration of the kingdom at that point, and the mighty Belshazzar who had all these resources at his fingertips in his blatant disrespect and blasphemy toward God by using the vessels that her set apart for sacred use as part of his drunken orgy paid the ultimate price. That's the story. That's pretty cool. All right. That's pretty cool because you can combine history and theology and all kinds of things together. But what does that mean for us today? Why Why is this significant to us as we're examining our own journey here of of thriving in our own kind of Babylon. A culture that is dismissive of God on its best day and on its worst day is full-blown blasphemous of God. A culture that has shifted away from a time where we acknowledge that God was significant like they did eventually in Nebuchadnezzar's day. Uh, uh, and, And there was a remnant still who believed in the God of the Hebrews. It was the, the Jews, the people that had been taken apart. It was Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. These poor boys who had been taken from their parents' clutches and brought to this country, which we saw in chapter 1, castrated, re-educated, forced to assimilate, given positions of administrative authority. And these were, this was this little remnant that was left that ever once in a while stood up and said, we are going to be different. We are going to rage against the machine. We are going to stand firm on our beliefs. And today, in many ways, we are at such a moment culturally in this country, but even around the world. Even around the world. And sometimes our mistake is that we always view things as Americans and as Westerners. And you need to understand the spiritual battle that takes place around the world is the battle between evil and good. Between God and Satan. And it's not unique to the United States. We just have our own flavor, our own version of it. While the Medes are over here and the Persians are over there and the Chaldeans are over here and we're in Babylon, however you want to describe it, the bottom line is we have a responsibility to stand up for truth in the midst of our own personal Babylon. In this system that says God does not matter, he's irrelevant, that the word of God is not dependable, if it's even valid at all these kind of arguments that come our ways, we have to be ready to give an answer. Like Daniel was, when the invitation comes, the question remains for us is, will we speak or will we suppress? Because that's what Daniel's options were. Daniel's options were to either speak up or he could have simply said, you know, I'm out. I'm like the other guys. I don't have a clue, man. We don't know why it was so hard to understand these because, uh, you know, I mean, he, he was able to, but it was, it was written in Aramaic, which was not an unknown language there's been several theories as to why it was difficult to interpret. It could have been because often when writing those kind of languages, they didn't put vowels in, so it could have been all consonants in that language, and that may have been a little tricky, or it could have been the configuration. It could have been all in a single row, or it could have been like four rows of equal letters, and so it looked like kind of a, a mysterious block of random letters or whatever, but when, when Daniel saw it, he knew exactly what was going on. And by the way, other people's confusion about what God is saying does not eliminate the power of the message. And so I want you to understand this. I think some of us are looking for the writing on the wall and we're looking in the wrong place as residents of Babylon. God's not going to write the white writing on the wall. Why not? Because we have the writing of the word. We already got it. We already know the message. We already know what's at play. We also have an idea of how it's going to end. While a lot of people like to debate and and discuss that, we know this that in the end, Jesus comes back and he rules and reigns, and Satan gets defeated once for all. We know that, that's clear. We know how we can have a relationship with God. We know what holiness looks like. We know what's important to God. We know what's sacred. We we don't need to wait for a hand to appear and say, this is what's going on. We already have it. Now my question is, what are we doing with the message? Are we suppressing it? Or are we speaking it? You and I are Daniels in Babylon. We're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's in Babylon. We have a responsibility That God has placed on us as the redeemed, as those who have trusted Christ, as those who have the Spirit of Christ living in them through the Holy Spirit, as those of us who have the Word of God in our hands. We've got this right here. But what are we doing with it? And to just close it, ignore it, walk away from it, and pretend it doesn't exist is no less a dereliction of duty on our part than if Daniel had walked into that and said, "Oh, nope, 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 not going there, I'm out. We have a duty before God to speak the truth with love, not obnoxious. There's nothing obnoxious about Daniel. There's nothing obnoxious. There was just a firm, quiet confidence in that, you know what? God's got this, and I'm going I'm I'm to trust him. Whether in, later on, you know, he ends up in the lion's den. Or whether, or whether he's standing before, you know, the chief eunuch and saying, eh, this, this food isn't for me. When, well, we just see this quiet confidence in Daniel's life. You know why? Because it wasn't about Daniel. It's about what God was playing out in his bigger agenda. And that's it. You know what? We don't have to worry about who wins. We have to be faithful in the moment. But we already know who wins in the end. Why? Because the writing's on the wall. No, oh, it's writing's in the book. So let me give you some principles and then we'll be done. Number one, pride and arrogance is a progressive sin that will always lead to judgment. It's the original sin. Whenever we disregard God and his word, whenever we think we're exceptions to the rule, whenever we think that it doesn't apply to us, whenever we think that he doesn't matter, that God was just, you know, just, oh, he was having a bad day that day. that just does not apply to me. Those kind of attitudes, this pride and arrogance is a progressive sin, and God will judge that eventually, whether it is in our lives individual, whether we are a believer or an unbeliever, or whether we're just talking about collectively as a church or as a nation, God is not gonna tolerate hubris and arrogance and pride in our lives. Why? Because it's devastating. It's devastating to our relationship to him. But many times, what we end up doing is having this casual relationship with our own pride. We think we've got it under control. We think that somehow we're special. I don't know about you, but I have this habit, and I I, I really hate it, right? But about every two years, I get a speeding ticket. I mean, I think you could look back over the course of my my entire driving history. I got my first speeding ticket when I was 17. I hid it from my parents for years. But, because they always threatened they would take my, my, my driver's license away if I got a speeding ticket. So I had to hide it. So I took one sin and made it even worse. But the bottom line is, I'll go for about two years and then boom, I find another one. I'm like, well, Dan, why are you so consistent in this area? I got one about 14 months ago. I was, and I'm a pastor, right? right? I don't drink, but I speed. See, because my sins are better than your sins, right? God loves me more because I'm a pastor. No, see, see, that's the kind of rationalization we start thinking. So I was on my way to visit a friend who'd had a stroke, who's in the hospital. And I'm going through, and I'm a busy guy. So I'm on the phone. I'm taking care of business. I'm texting. I'm calling. I'm back. I know. I'm telling you, I'm arrogant, all right? Don't you text, but I'm going. That's why I use the phone I use, because I can do it with one hand. So I'm I'm texting, I'm I'm, I'm dictating, I'm I'm answering calls. And then all of a sudden, I see the blue lights of accountability in my rearview mirror. And, you know, there's always that flash second, you know, that, that second where you have a major coronary event when you first see them, right? That second second is when it's, please, God, let it be for the guy next to me. The third second, when you look at your speedometer and you're going 80, the fourth second, when you look over to the, to the, to the speed limit sign and it says, construction zone 35, and then that fifth moment where you just want to die. I'm cooked, right? So I pull over onto the, and so I'm like, what's my best case here? Should I pull the pastor card? Should I pull the sick friend card? Should I cry? I mean, you know, where do we go on this? You know? All of the above, <laughs> Anyway, I rolled the window down, and our friend from South Carolina was very gracious to me, and he goes, you seem to be in a little bit of a hurry today. (laughs) I love people who are sarcastic and understatement, but I said, just a tad. (laughs) What's going on? Well, I'm going down to see a friend in the hospital. I'm a pastor. I said, are you aware that we just changed the speed limit to 35 last night? And he said, but even if you'd been here the day before, it was only 45. (laughs) And you're considerably over that. And sir, let me be honest with you. At the point where you're at, I'm supposed to take you to jail, directly to jail. And we're not going to pass go. We're not going to collect $200. That's what I'm supposed to do to you. But I'm going to be kind, and I'm going to drop it down to below that limit. But here's a little gift from the state of South Carolina to you. And he hands me this ticket for $200 and some odd, which at that point I was really glad to get because <laughs> I'm too pretty to go to jail. I just, uh, <laughs> you laugh. That hurts me when you laugh at things like that. So, no, the, the reality is I, I fully deserved what I got, right? Again, but my sins are not nearly as bad as your sins because I can rationalize mine all the way. But here's what I pulled back out on the interstate, and you know how fast I went? 33. People behind me cussing. No, 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 no. Look at the speed limit sign. We're all going 33 today because you just never you can't trust these, these uh, speedometers, right? And so, and then I went down a couple weeks later to see him again, and I'm gonna back up to 35 right? And then the other day I'm looking at, oh, I'm at 40. But you know, you get four or five for free, right? You know? <laughs> and I've got, I think, about 10 more months when I'll be confessing my next sin to you if my pattern continues to, th- because eventually I get used to it, and I rationalize, and I use pride, and, I, and so forth. You say, well, that's just a ridiculous re- review. It, it, yes and no. Because I know people who, who have affairs, who have addictions, who, who commit crimes, who embezzle. And where does it start? It starts with some rationalization. It begins a little bit, I'm different, I'm special. I can get away with it and God doesn't really care. Or God's not watching. But it eventually catches up. It caught up with Belshazzar, but believe it, it'll catch up with us. It caught up for Babylon and it'll catch up for the United States of America. And ultimately, it catches up for Satan. This is not something that God's going to tolerate. He's not going to tolerate our refusal to understand who he is in this universe, and we better pay attention. Here's number two. And overfamiliarity and disrespect toward holy things is dangerous. I wish I could take you through all the examples in Scripture, but whether it was the guys that, you know, were, were they, well, first of all, they put, a, they put the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart, and they weren't supposed to do it. It was never supposed to be an ox cart. And they're walking beside it, and one of the oxen stumbled, and they touched it. Boom, they died. Over and over again, you can see in scripture where people were frivolous toward the things that God said are holy, and as a consequence, you know, Hophni and Phineas, they were committing adultery with prostitutes on the steps of the church. What happened to Hophni and Phineas? Died. You know, this isn't this isn't one of those areas where you say, Well, did God really get upset with him or not? No, no, they died. Darius died. Ultimately, we understand this: God is holy, we are broken, we have a path to restoration. And it's up to him, not us. It's his grace and his mercy that allows us to have any hope at all. So let us treat him with the holiness and the respect, with the reverence and the reserve that is his. And the sad thing is, many times we get casual about the things of God. We get casual about his word. We get casual about what we know to be true. We get casual with his name. I hear pastors walking around saying, oh, my God. Hang on just a moment. (laughs) Hang on just a moment. Is his name not sacred? What was that commandment about using the Lord's name in vain? And yet we do those kinds of things. Why? Because we're thoughtless. And why are we thoughtless? Because we're thinking about ourselves. And why are we thinking about ourselves? Because we're prideful. You say, Dan, that sounds legalistic. And you know, here's the problem with legalism, is it becomes an excuse for us doing whatever we want, whenever we want, if we're not careful. We're asking the wrong questions. Not what's wrong with, but what's right with what should, could we do instead of what should we do? And I think it, when it comes to the things of God, there is no position in which we find ourselves that we cannot elevate him high enough. We have to elevate him high enough. We have to see him as for who he is. He is holy and he is righteous and he is worthy of attention and praise. And this is the highest end and means the man. That's what the Westminster Confession says. <laughs> that all of our glory, all of our life, all of that belongs to him. So we need to be really careful about a casual attitude toward truth, a casual attitude toward the word of God, a casual attitude toward our relationship with him. Here's number three. God is patient and long-suffering, but he ultimately is not going to be ignored. He's patient, he's long-suffering, but eventually he says, enough, enough. And you know, even for those of us who are believers, that's important to know because as as his child, as he is our heavenly father, he still wants us to do the right things years ago i love crab legs anybody else here like crab legs i know this seems like a i love crab legs i mean those are i'm sorry they're not gonna be in heaven but i you know so i'm eating as many as i can here because i mean they're good stuff back when i could afford them i can't afford them now you'd have to mortgage your house to get them today but but i used to live in florida my wife and i and we only had two kids at the time and and we we decided i said i'm splurging tonight i'm getting the all you can eat crab legs it was 9.99 can you imagine all you can eat crab legs for 9.99 yeah, yeah, I'm telling you what, I did them some damage. In fact, the reason I was there is probably why they went out of business a few years later, because, man, I, I was, that was my goal, is to just make them sorry they put that into place. I'm eating crab legs like I don't have good sense. And I'm sitting, Julie had our daughter, who was just in a, a little infant carrier, and I had our toddler son, who was sitting at one of those chairs you pull up to the table. And it was not a big table, it was a t- you know, it's a small table, and you got kids and paraphernalia, you know how it goes. And so, but I had this thing of butter, because the only way you can make crab legs better is put butter and lemon on them, right? So, so I had it right here. And my son Nathan, who was just a little kid at the time, just kept reaching over for the butter. Well, dad gets cranky when you mess with his food. I'm just telling you, they're right up front, all right? So, you know, kid quit messing with my food, and so I'd move the butter, and he'd reach again, and he'd reach again. And I mean, the kid is like he had extender arms, <laughs> he could reach in. and I've just about had it at this time. And my wife said, why don't you put it on the other side of the table? Well, now the Burrell kicks in. I shouldn't have to put it on the other side of the table. He should listen to me. Um, And, you know, I'm just being a jerk. But I'm just like, you know, nope, nope, I'm going to win this battle. And he keeps reaching for it, reaching for it. So eventually I have this bright idea. Well, I wonder what he's going to do with it when he gets it. So Nathan's looking at me, I'm looking at him, testing the wheels of all the ages, you know, coming, coming here. If only I could see when he was 16 what was going to happen. But anyway, at this point, we're still doing it at four in, or three, three years old and my age. And so he just looks at me, he reaches over, he picks that thing up, and he holds it like this, like, you going to stop me? And I look at him like, nope. So we have this stare down going on. And he looks me dead in the eye, takes that thing and swigs it down like it's a shot of whiskey. I don't know what it looks like when you do a shot of whiskey, but I'm assuming this is what it looks like. I saw a few John Wayne movies when I was growing up. So I downed it like that. Wipes his mouth off. And then his eyes, he's like go. He swallows it, and then he starts crying. And he's like licking his arms. He's got coated butter everywhere. It's like, and, and I look over at my wife out of the corner of my eye, and she's like, you are the worst dad ever. And I'm, I'm like... Told you you shouldn't have touched it. Told you you shouldn't have touched it. I thought I'd won. I thought I won. And to that extent, you know what? Sometimes God gives us what we think we want, and that's his punishment for us. And that's pretty bad. Of course, for me, the punishment was later, because if you put that much butter in a two-year-old, well, let's just say, diaper-geddon hit. It was not fun. And my wife's like, I ain't touching that. That's your doing, all right? You're going after that one. But, I mean, it was, it was a disaster, But sometimes we like that with God. We're like, I know this is wrong, but I'm special. I know this is wrong. And you name the excuse. And we look God dead in the eye and think that his patience and his long suffering is going to give us a get-out-of-jail-free card. But it doesn't work that way. Darius thought he had, I'm sorry, Darius, Belshazzar thought he had things under control. He had that brief moment in time when he could have confessed and said, "I'm broken." That's what happened. Remember with Nineveh. Nineveh. Whenever Jonah came and said, "You better, God's going to destroy you. You are toast. You better, you you better get ready because judgment is coming." And Nineveh said, "Oh, he's right." They repented. They put on sackcloth and ashes, and God said, "I'm going to spare you from this judgment." I tick Jonah off, but that's what God did for the people of Nineveh. Or Belshazzar had that moment in time, and he sat down, and he said, thanks for your service. Here's your, here's your robe, here's your gold chain, and by the way, here's the edict. You become number three, and sent him on his way, even though he didn't want it. He said, here, it's on your way, and Daniel said, well, my job's done. I'm going to take and go. But that night, in came the troops, off came his head, and the rest, as they say, is history. God is patient and long-suffering. The fact that we are still here all these years after the fall, all these years after the crucifixion, is evidence that God is patient. He's not willing that any should perish. He's begging us, come to repentance. Trust him as Lord and Savior. Do this, do this. But there comes a time when God is going to say, time's up. Time's up. How do I know that? Because the writing's on the wall. We know there comes a time when man wants to die, then after that, the judgment. We know there comes a time when Christ will return. You say, well, that's supernatural. How does how do a same? you're an educated man. How do you, you, guys, you know what? There are things, you can't have natural, as you have supernatural. There are things that we cannot explain. I cannot explain a handwriting on the wall, and I cannot explain how this thing's going to end, but I do know this, that everything in this book that has ever been written continues to come true in my life and in this world and in this history. We better be ready. Number four, we have a responsibility to express the truth, not suppress it. We have a responsibility to express the truth, not suppress it. And here's my challenge to you before we leave. You know, it's easy to stand up for Jesus and hear, but tomorrow you're going to be at work. Tomorrow you're going to be in the corporate. Tomorrow you're going to be on the golf course. Tomorrow you're going to be at school. Tomorrow's going to be a lot of different things going on. Let me ask you this. When the moment comes for you to speak the truth, are you going to speak it or are you going to suppress it? I'm not talking about being obnoxious. Please don't be obnoxious and call yourself a Christian. That's a horrible thing to do. But I am simply saying this. There are times when you say, I cannot. I cannot cannot bend to this. I'm not going to eat this. This is what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to do. I'm not going to tell you a lie and pretend that it's okay. I'm not going to acquiesce to do what makes me comfortable or makes me rich. I'm going to tell you what needs to be said. I'm not going to be ugly because you know what? It isn't your opinion that matters. It's what was written on the wall. Let God take the heat for the truth. He can handle it. All you're doing is communicating the truth when you speak up. Say, well, people get mad at me. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they shoot the messenger. I get that. I get that. But it's still the right thing to do for us to speak the truth. And you know what? You speak it at work. You speak it at home. You speak it when you write a letter. You speak it when you post on Facebook. You speak it when you go into the voter's box. You speak it all the time. The question is, are you aware that you're speaking? And are you speaking biblically? That's our responsibility. Number five, it's foolish to ignore the writing on the wall. It's foolish to ignore the writing on the wall. What a gift we have in the Bible. It really is. So much here. I've read it over and over and over again. And every time I read it, something new pops out. When I was preparing for the sermon, I saw things, learned things I'd never learned before. And I like to think I'm somewhat familiar with the book. But you know what that is? That's that indwelling presence of God in my life that simply says, you know, Dan, you may think you're pretty pious because you don't drink, but when it comes to disregarding authority in your life, yeah, you got a bigger problem with that. Maybe you need to focus on that in your life. Well, I don't like that. It hurts my feelings. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like confessing it. I want you to think better of me than I really am. But none of those things really matter in light of God's holiness and his standard. And i got to get real. That's the way all of us. If you think I'm special because I'm a pastor, man, you are in for a hard disappointment. And as a dad, as a business leader, as a CEO, whatever your position is in the world, understand this. God has given you an opportunity to take his word and make it real in your life and in your sphere of influence. What are you doing? What are you doing to be salt And to be light. The writings on the wall for our country, our culture, the world, and also for our homes. And we have to decide whether we're going to be a Belshazzar or we're going to be a Daniel. We have a role to play in this grand narrative. Maybe it's time that we stand up and speak truthfully to be salt, to be light, to be courageous because he's given us the truth.